Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper, welcoming to the podcast um, Imani Oakley. Hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yep, that's correct. Um, I felt like I, w- I wanted to say for a second, Annie Oakley. I don't know. Are you good with like a pistol or anything like that? Uh, not exactly. <laughs> a political gunslinger taking out the corrupt bad guys, right? I mean, I guess, uh, yeah, I was about to say, if, if you use it as a metaphor, maybe. <laughs> Straight shooter. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, Excellent. But yeah, uh, Imani is a candidate for the upcoming primary next year in the New Jersey 10th Congressional District. Is that correct? Yeah, yep, that's correct. Yeah. So uh, we thought we'd uh, have you on to, to talk about that a little bit. Um, so yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, running in New Jersey's 10th Congressional District. So for those that don't know where that is, that's Northeast Jersey. Um, it covers uh, cities like Newark, Jersey City. Um, we're right across from Manhattan, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I th- you know, I'm sort of vaguely familiar with New Jersey. Uh, I've lived in Manhattan and I now live in Philly. You know, so you'd think I would have like a detailed <laughs> mental map. Um, but you know, um, I will say Jersey has the best state Twitter account. Um, yes, yes, it does. Um, and we also have, I would like to go on record by saying we have the best food as well. I know there are people in Texas who will be upset about that. There are probably people in New York. I think we have the best food because we have variety. We have everything That's true. that you could want to the best, uh, you know, to the highest level. So and the thing high quality, you know, go ahead, Alexis. I was gonna say, I gotta stick up Ryan. We gotta stick up for Philly. Ryan's a new, new, uh, homeowner in Philadelphia, but, mm. uh, you know, I think you can already tell Philly's got a good food scene as well. But as leftists, we don't need to endorse hierarchy. We can share the love <laughs> with New Jersey and their great food as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll say that for today. But, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow, I, I might say something different. You never know. <laughs> tomorrow, you might rank New Jersey over Philly. I get you. I get you. So, so to kick off the conversation here, you know, you're, you're, you're challenging a guy. We'll get into it later, but he's like, uh, he's a long time, like political animal. He's, you know, he's been in, in the seat for a number of years and he sort of inherited it from his father, you know, so, so how did you get into, uh, politics? Where, uh, like what inspired you to sort of like, like, uh, jump in? Yeah. So basically, um, what inspired me to jump in was during college, fun fact, I actually originally majored in biology and I wanted to be an oral surgeon. Uh, I wanted to do like trauma surgery uh, for people who needed, like came in, had car crashes, et cetera. I wanted to like help people, you know, rebuild in that way. But then yeah. also around the time I was in college, uh, Trayvon Martin was murdered. Um, Occupy Wall Street happened. And I just found myself constantly, you know, being in the groups, organizing with those folks. And, and really like finding, fixing those issues to be very, very important. And over time, I just came to realize that like, if we're going to really make change in this country, it's going to require it to happen at the governmental level, because when laws are passed, they are passed for a very long time, for good or for worse. I mean, it's basically permanent. Um, and if we want to fix stuff like, sure, organizing is great and organizing is a great step to, you know, one, force people 
to uh, legislate the way we want them to legislate. But ultimately, we are going to have to get people who are going to be willing to legislate and fight for good legislation for for people. So we don't have situations where we have the one percent having so much wealth um, and we don't have situations where, you know, black people can be killed uh, for no reason at all than walking their own neighborhood. Uh, and so that's what made me want to get involved in government and politics at all. Um, but with regards to, you know, my opponent being a political animal, now that is something I will respectfully push back on. Usually when somebody <laughs> says they're a political animal, like they like fought tooth and nail, no matter what, from the bottom up and just climb their way up. This guy was given his seat by the grace of the silver spoon, which is his dad having the seat before him. Um, and, you know, what's inspired me to finally take the leap into running uh, is a few things. So, you know, I've worked in Jersey politics my entire career, uh, fresh out of law school. I jumped right in to working in Jersey politics. And at first, I actually worked on the establishment side. And it was terrible. It was a terrible experience. Um, nobody was even open to hearing anything about like good progressive policy. And like there were times where I would write like these wonderful, well-researched policy papers on like why we should be supporting like Medicare for all or, or things like that, or even UBI. And it was just like, yeah, we'll take a look. And then like they would never read it. You know what I mean? So it was just like it was just constantly arguing with a brick wall. And so I was like, all See, right. I'm on it. That, that's because you were talking to a political machine, not an animal. Animals are, are wonderful. They have hearts and spirits. A political animal might have responded to you, but a machine, a machine doesn't hear you. A machine yeah. just keeps going, right? Exactly. And that's exactly what they did. They just like kept going. It didn't matter how, you know, real my argument was, how much I could back it up with research. None of that mattered. It only mattered, you know, what their donors wanted. And what the political party bosses wanted. Because in New Jersey, we have like a Tammany Hall style of, uh, of politics. So New Jersey? I thought New Jersey was as clean as it gets. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> it's known for two things. Good food and clean politics. <laughs> <laughs> you know, only one of those is true. And I, I, I won't say which one. But, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, you know, after a while, I was like, all right, I'm not cut out to work for a politician because, like, this is, this is just terrible. Like, I like logic and I like when, you know, when the data shows something, you move with the data. Um, so I left and then I worked for, uh, New Jersey Working Families. Um, and that's when I really started getting into fighting back against New Jersey's machine. Um, there was a piece of legislation called the EOA Economic Opportunity Act, which essentially gave this big party boss a bunch of corporate tax breaks that benefited all the corporations that he owned and he became a billionaire. Um, and so we <sighs> fought a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. And we fought. And here's the thing, though. You know, once that made him a billionaire, he became the party boss of South Jersey, uh, where, you know, he basically anoints people to run for office because he pays for, you know, he's a big donor and makes sure that he runs his machine tight down there and gets people into office. Um, and so I fought a lot against that when I was at Working Families, as well as, you know, the patronage and cronyism that runs rampant throughout New Jersey politics and New Jersey's ballot line, which, you know, this sounds like an exaggeration, but New Jersey actually has the most corrupt ballot design in the country. And that's not exaggeration. Like we are the only state that has this thing. Um, yeah, tell us about yeah. this, the ballot line. What's, what's, what's so distinct about this? Right? Yeah, yeah. So essentially what it looks like is it's this long column of names. 
and they are establishment backed names. And what they'll do is they'll put the most popular name at the top. So, for example, in 2020, Joe Biden was at the top, followed by Cory Booker on down. In 2022, it's going to be the most popular name is going to be Donald Payne at the top um, of their line, et cetera. And different years, it can it can change up. But in 2020, it was Joe Biden. And then there's a long column of establishment names after that. And what this does is it contributes, one, to voter confusion um, because it basically creates a psychological situation where voters look at the ballot and they say, oh, this must be where the serious Democrats are, because why would they be in the same column with this like really popular name if they weren't serious? Now, an interesting happened, an interesting thing happened in 2020 because Bernie Sanders, who nobody can argue was not a viable, whether you liked him or not, right? You cannot argue that he was not a viable, real candidate. And he was not on that line. Joe Biden had it. Bernie Sanders was placed way out in what we call ballot Siberia, which is basically the least prime spot on a ballot. So it's if your ballot go runs vertically, um, that would be way out to the right of the ballot. Or if your ballot runs horizontally, that's somewhere like near the bottom, like by yourself where no one's going to naturally look. And what that does, um, and it's a little bit, bit different for Bernie Sanders because he had a lot of name recognition, but what it does to a typical progressive challenger is without even campaigning, and there have been studies done on this, a Princeton professor who works also at Rutgers um, teamed up with a uh, policy think tank here in the state to actually do a study on this. What that's worth being on what they call the ballot line or the party line, what that's essentially worth is a two-digit advantage. Now, the number varies depending on what source you ask. Sometimes people say 15% advantage, sometimes 20, sometimes up as high as 35% advantage. Um, but essentially, it's a type of percentage advantage that you only get in other states if you like swept your opponent. Like you campaigned like crazy, you went really hard and you swept your opponent. Here in New Jersey, establishment-backed Democrats get that simply because they are placed on this line. Um, and again, we are the only state that has this and it keeps establishment politicians in power. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm still a little confused about, about how this works. Uh, so you're saying like all the different like offices are mixed up. Like I'm thinking of my Philly ballot, you know, and it's like for president vote, you know, Joe Biden, Donald Trump for office, you know, like the, the local, um, you know, representative, Vote blah blah blah. So so is that how it works? It's like it, like there there's no sort of distinguishing between like they'll mix up you know so president here representative here another president here you know senator like is that what you were talking about? So it's mixed up, but to favor the party establishment. So for example, right. you'll have a president, then you'll have a senator, then you'll have a congressperson, then you'll have uh, like a county commissioner on down, but they're all in that one column. Unlike what the, you know, the ballot that you were just describing, it has a demarcation where it says, you know, president, and then everyone who's running for president is in that box. Then the I next one will say, they can arrange it. Yeah. Can they arrange it? How, who's in charge of arranging it? It's, it sounds like it's arbitrary and at the discretion of uh, par- people that are the, backing the establishment candidates. Or? The party That's machine, correct. presumably. Mm-hmm. So technically, the position that um, decides what our ballot looks like is called county clerk. Uh, and in theory, County clerks have the power to make ballots look however they want in in Jersey. So they could choose to have a fair and good ballot like tomorrow if they wanted to. Problem is that the people who sit in those seats 
are backed by the party establishment. And so they yeah, they get it, into that. It's hard to do a good job of that when your arms are being twisted. It's really <laughs> difficult. To- <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. And so, you know, um, they also get placed when, when county clerk elections come around. They also get placed on the ballot line, too. Um, so it's just like it's just oh, a yeah. revolving, revolving door of corruption. <laughs> no conflict, no conflict of interest happily there. No, no problem there. Right. That's so the, boy, that is a big. I mean, you know, students of political science know that the incumbency advantage is already a big advantage for the incumbent. So when you add this on to that, that's quite that's quite a machine advantage. Yes. And you know what? What makes it even worse also is how you get the party backing. I think that's actually even worse than. Well, I, actually, I'd say it's even because it's it's. I mean, the ballot line is bad democracy, but also how you get there is even worse because it's not like they're saying, okay, who's lived in this community the longest, right? And then putting you based on that. Or it's not like, who has these really great policy ideas? Like, they're definitely not doing that, right? It's basically who has donated a lot of money to the party and now wants to run for office or even worse. And they typically do this a lot of times with working class black and brown folks, which is they'll put them on like a commission or a board where they're making more money than they've ever seen in their lives. Like commissions, you can get, those are like six figure jobs. And what they'll do is they'll put you on that board, put you up and they're like, you know what? You're brilliant. We're going to put you on this commission, et cetera, et cetera. Then you're on that commission, you're sitting there. And then one day a party boss comes a knocking and they're like, yeah, I need you to make the regulation go this way. Or I need you to make the regulation go that way. And typically it's a way that benefits them either politically or financially. And if you listen to them enough times, you say yes to them enough times, they call that being loyal. And they say, okay, (laughs) this person was loyal for long enough. Let's let them run for office. Uh, And that's another way that people get on the ballot line as well. I, I bet the conversation starts with something like, pretty nice job you got there. How are you liking it? You liking it a lot? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In a totally unrelated conversation, let me tell you something else. Right, right. Like- <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I've been fortunate to never have been deemed loyal enough to be put on a commission in the first place. So I'm very proud of that. I'm like, great. That means I was doing the right thing this whole time. <laughs> yeah, it it uh, it strikes me, you know, you talked about Tammany Hall, but um, – you know, you, you read some history of Tammany Hall and I feel like it was a different kind of corruption, you know, like, like it was it, the, the, the money kind of percolated a lot further down the income ladder. You know, it was like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, we, we have our ward healers and we're getting all of our people jobs as policemen, you know, or whatever kind of, you know, port authority goons, um, and, uh, you know, election day, everybody gets turkeys and a bottle of whiskey. You know, it's like, <laughs> it, it's more democratic, you might Ryan, say. are you saying, Ryan, I, I was going to say, you're, you're saying even our corruption is less equal than it used to be? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, now what, 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 what Imani is describing here, it's like, like, it sounds like like they're just in it for themselves. Like they're not even trying to cut the voters in on, on, uh, you know, piece of the action. Like it's just, give me, you know, my regulation, my company. It's never sort of like we need to create blocks of voters, you know, that are loyal to us sort of instinctively. Well, that that creates an opening though. Ibani, doesn't that create an opening because your agenda is so actually helpful to the people that you're trying to represent and you're fighting for Mm -hmm. that it seems like the machine can be defeated in this age of social media and actually building a movement uh it it seems like on the issues 
you know, versus the corrupt machine, you've got a lot to say and a lot to get people excited about, right? Mm -hmm. No, that's absolutely correct because, you know, an interesting thing about machine party bosses in New Jersey is they don't understand, they think power is about having absolute control. They don't understand that if you want to keep power, you know, you have to, you do have to share it with the people. Um, or otherwise, you know, after a while, you may enjoy that power for a little bit, but after a while, people get fed up with the nonsense. And what I've actually uh, encountered so far in, in my month of campaigning after launch, I've talked to a lot of folks who I actually assumed were going to be Donald Payne's base, and that's uh, older black voters in the area. And a lot of them are wildly fed up with the machine. They feel as though, um, one, black and brown neighborhoods have not been taken care of. They feel, too, that Donald Payne is not living up to the legacy of his father, because it's true. His father actually was a good congressman who was active and worked for the community. So that's actually true. Um, but they feel like he's not living up to that. And they feel like their communities just aren't getting better, despite the fact that the same people are winning every year. So people are actually very excited that he has a challenger, which you're right, it creates a complete opportunity for us to come in and really make transformative change about this. You have a... Um I, I was looking on your website. You mentioned uh, uh, a bit, and I, I, I want to. I have a thing I'm I'm sort of aiming at here. But first, you know, you mentioned that um, you your family was like that. You nearly lost your house, or, mm -hmm. or something like that. It was the reason why you moved out of the tenth district? Um, yeah. When did that happen, and, and how did it happen? Yeah, so I was 26 when that happened. Um, and basically what happened over my family had been the housing crisis hit. And yeah. my family had been like struggling to keep our home above float since then. Um, and not only did the housing crisis hit, but my mom changed jobs. Uh, she took a 20k cut in pay. Um, when she changed jobs, uh, she was a social worker with the state, but she found that to be really, really heartbreaking because essentially she felt like she wasn't helping the kids. Um, and which like, I mean, as we all know, that's, I mean, it's, it, it's true. The state has yeah. done a very terrible job of taking care of kids in, in foster care. So then she went and became a preschool teacher and it cost her a 20 K, uh, cut. So that's the number one thing that happened. But then following that, the bank out of nowhere combined my mom's mortgage with the taxes, which then and they didn't reach out to her. They didn't get, do any of that. Like one day she just got that in the mail, just like, hey, guess what? Your monthly mortgage is now uh, combined with your taxes and you have to pay more per month than usual. And the 20K a month pay cut uh, in pay hurt. And then also just that they randomly did it. So she didn't have any time to kind of figure out what the finances were going to be like or, or anything. It was just like, yeah, now your monthly payment is up randomly. Um, and so we tried to fight it for years. We tried to reach out to HUD and we didn't get any help there. Tried to like get some uh, legal help and that really didn't do much either. Um, and so we nearly lost the house to foreclosure. And what ended up happening was my brother at the time was living in Brooklyn uh, with his partner and my bro I didn't have a job. I was still in law school at the time. And so my brother moved from his house in Brooklyn, moved into the house. Me and my mom moved out to a small apartment in Newark, but not the part of Newark that's NJ10. So Jersey is highly gerrymandered, another problem, but it's a part of Newark that is technically NJ08. Um, and 
basically my mom paid the taxes on the house while paying the rent for the small apartment we were living in. And my brother paid the mortgage on the house while living in it. And we were able to keep the house above float until now I, I have a job and I'm able to um, help pay half on the house. But if I were to leave my house right now, and leave my mom with, cause she's still a preschool teacher. Um, and she's still, I mean, she has a little bit more of a salary, but not enough to, you know, keep this house from going into foreclosure. If I were to leave my house right now, um, this house would still go into foreclosure. So we're still, we're still stuck in that, in that rut. Yeah. And so what, what this, what this reminded me of is I, I, I wrote a, um, a paper for the, the people's policy project about, uh, the housing crisis and what it did to to middle class wealth and especially black wealth um, mm-hmm. just absolutely devastated black wealth, cut it by more than right. half, I think, um, mm-hmm. between at least between uh, 2007 and like 2013. And right. one of the reasons of uh, for that was, you know, they, they had uh, President Obama had a, a slush fund. Uh, that was in the TARP bailout passed under George W. Bush that, that he could use for, uh, you know, a mortgage assistance. Mm-hmm. And the administration, under the advice of, you know, uh, uh, Tim Geithner, um, and a number of other economists, they decided not to do that. They didn't want to do either principal reductions or, or other kinds of, uh, a loan, uh, c- like cutting outstanding balances on loans because that would hurt the banks. The banks would yep. take a hit on the bad securities that they had on their balance sheets. And that would have, you know, possibly caused financial instability. I don't buy the argument actually, but like this was their reasoning. And so they just said, we're not really going to do anything with this. The, the, the program HAMP, you've, I'm sure you've heard of it total disaster mm-hmm. uh 10 million people lost their homes and it strikes yeah. me that's like kind of a, a a a window into like the sort of dynamic you're talking about because this donald Payne jr fellow he's a black man um mm-hmm. comes from a, a a you know a family i'm sure with some roots in the community and yet uh is not really representing uh the needs of his constituents it sounds like in a somewhat yep. similar fashion to how uh at least with respect to you know underwater homeowners during the the housing uh crisis the Obama administration was really kind of leaving people out to dry so uh, like you know can you speak to this like dynamic with a kind of the congressional black caucus and their you know, kind of like hesitancy in their kind of complicity with like some sort of, you know, a questionable interest, at least. And what you, you know, how, what's your view on those sort of problems? Yeah. So, I mean, you're you're exactly right. You know, this district is the only black majority district in New Jersey. It's also a minority majority district because actually a lot of I mean, black folks lost their wealth, too, but also a lot of Latino folks. Uh, Absolutely. Also, yeah. same thing. Um, lost their houses. And as of 2019, we were actually number one in the country. Um, for foreclosures as, tw- as of 2019, right? Still, New Jersey Ooh. is one of the few states that has actually not recovered from the housing crisis. Um, and what I think it actually comes down to is I think that, um, black representatives really take advantage of black voters because black voters are voters for survival. 
uh, for the most part. I mean, young, younger black voters are a little bit different. Um, it's really like older black voters who, you know, I mean, and I get it. Like they've seen some things yeah. like they're, they're understandable. They've seen Jim, yeah. They've seen Jim Crow. They've seen the war on drugs. They've seen, you know, nine 11, like they've seen some things. Um, so, you know, they've seen, uh, you know, the, the crime bill and, and, all, and all these things. So they, they vote for survival. Um, but a lot of times the way that they feel that survival should play out is, they vote for the safer, who they feel is a safer candidate, which they feel is the establishment candidate. And they feel that it's more safe for a number of reasons. It's, you know, their campaign is making more money or because like, you know, Hillary Clinton will drop down and campaign for them or whatever, you know. The kiss they, of they, death. The word. <laughs> she, she tried to get her uh, that, district a, attorney <laughs> in Manhattan and that, that lady ate it. Oh. Right. I mean, that is a sign of progress that she is now the kiss Sorry, of death. Sorry, I interrupted but, but you, yeah. No, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. But yeah, so, so people, you know, who older black voters typically who are, you know, tend to vote more so for survival than younger black voters, they see these signs and they say, okay, this candidate looks like they're more likely to win. And then they vote for those establishment people. Um, and folks in the, uh, congressional black caucus, who benefit from this system don't say anything about it because that's the thing that gets them to continually be in office as opposed to their more left counterparts who, you know, probably same race and color, but more left. Um, and so, you know, I think that's why there is no, there's really nothing done about it because they benefit at the end of the day, at the end of the day. And I, I, before I was running for office and I'll still say it as a, as a candidate, but back when I was a political organizer, I used to tell folks all the time, the number one thing politicians are afraid of is losing their seat. If you can find ways to make them scared of losing their seat, you can get them legislate on anything. That's that you just have to make a credible threat uh, that they really believe yeah. they could lose their seat, and you can get them legislate on anything. That's where the, the people do have the power in that respect, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's true, and, and I will also add that you know it's familiar politics for conservative establishment candidates. Of, uh, of every background. I mean, Joe Biden is a classic, you know, old white guy who comforted a lot of people, especially a lot of old white people, um, because they were scared of the radical white Bernie Sanders. And so I think a lot of this pl plain, you know, playing to fears and, 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 you know, and, and, and kind of using Donald Trump and, and the reactionary right as a foil, uh, is a common way that the establishment Democrats kind of fight against the left and, and try to suppress truly radical, um, candidates like yourself. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, I'm really interested in your agenda because I do think, uh, it speaks to your, your community, your, your constituents seem to me, you tell me what you think to be a microcosm for the site of a lot of problems in this country. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I like that you early on in your, uh, undergraduate career wanted to go into trauma surgery because it, it seems like we need a political trauma surgeon for the body <laughs> politic, right? And, and, and like, you know, I'll just list off some, like, so. Economic justice, racial justice, Green New Deal, workers' rights, innovative infrastructure, mm -hmm. demilitarization, fair democracy, Medicare for all, abolish ICE. Um, you know, what would you like to talk about? Oh, here's one that I really like. Ryan will, will like this too as the policy wonk that he is. I think people don't appreciate the need for the federal government to fund municipalities mm -hmm. and how significant that is for some of these issues. Yeah. So, so you know – Whatever you'd like to talk about in terms of your agenda, you know, uh, go for it because I think this is really exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah. So for sure. So I will talk about um, 
you know, three main areas. I'll talk about housing. I will talk about environment and I will also talk about ice. Um, so first I'll, I'll start with housing because we already touched a little bit on that. And, you know, like I said, number one in the country for foreclosures, but also we have a severe issue with, um, affordability as far as renters are concerned. Mm-hmm. Rent is skyrocketing. And so a couple of things I want to do in those areas. Um, one, back when I was a constituent advocate working in the Senate, one of the things I, part of my portfolio was affordable housing. And I dealt with people who, you know, similar to my family, were going through foreclosure issues. And there's one issue with regards to foreclosure as it regard as it relates to predatory lending. But there's another issue that really doesn't get talked about that much. And it's a phenomenon where banks will sell a mortgage to a private lender. And then that private lender will smack on all these new fees. I remember one time I saw like a lender smack on a transfer fee, which made no sense because like the person who held the mortgage had no idea their mortgage was being transferred. So I was just like, like it just like made no sense. So they smack on all these fees upping the monthly mortgage rate that people have to pay. And of course they can't pay it. And then they, their house goes into, you know, goes into foreclosure. Uh, and there had been people who had like raised kids in their homes who were like really like legitimately elderly people um, who like no longer could pay despite the fact that they're otherwise their finances were good. Um, and so, you know, that lie that people say, well, you know, you should, you should have learned some financial literacy like that. <laughs> no, that did not matter because these people were very financially sound, but in order to continue to be financially sound, you, people have to play fair with you. Um, and they, people weren't playing fair. So one of the thing, and just saying that out loud, just talking about that system out loud, it sounds like it should be illegal, right? It is actually, yeah. it is a completely legal practice. Completely legal practice. Um, and so one of the things that I want to do when I get to Congress is outlaw that practice and make it so that, fine, if you sell a mortgage, okay, that's what, whatever, make your choice. But what whoever you sell it to has to keep the monthly payment the same as it was or make it less. It can't, it cannot go above what it was. Um, is there a name, a name that we can attach to the practice or does it just fit within predatory lending or how, how would you, what's a good way to, to help people remember that type of problem, would you say? Yeah, so it's not exactly predatory lending because predatory lending is when the loan itself went to somebody who, right. yeah. um, you know, should not have had it. So it's not exactly that. I would like maybe predatory selling. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure because it's, you know, you're, they're selling yeah. it to someone who then jacks up that price, um, which is a little right. bit different than predatory lending. Um, so, you know, that's, I'm not sure what name we will give it, but I, or that, that practice, but that's something it absolutely needs to be, needs to be outlawed. Um, so that's, you know, my plan with regards to fixing the foreclosure and, and mortgage issue. But then there's also renters who also need to be taken care of. Not everybody's going to own a house and everyone's going to buy a house and renters deserve to have good quality living spaces as well. And so one of the things I want to do is bring federal money to large municipalities and cities that one, uh, make it mandatory that New developments built after 2018 uh, have 50% affordable housing mandate. Right now, 30% is considered like the good amount that like you're not getting above this. Um, I think that I want to start making it so that it's worth large municipalities and cities, it's worthwhile for them to like actually demand that low. It's going to be 50% um, because 30% is just not enough to keep up with what we're seeing. It's not enough to uh, keep up with gentrification, which causes displacement. And it's not enough to keep up with another form of displacement, which is pushing people out onto the streets and into homelessness. So we have to, I want to do 50% 
bring those federal dollars for that. Also bring federal dollars to large cities and municipalities that place rent caps um, on all of their structures, whether that's 2018 or not, just overall uh, rent caps. Um, because we have, we have a, this is awesome. Yeah. We have a housing affordability crisis. Um, so that's housing with regards to, Oh, you want to say something? It looks like you want to. Oh, just real quick. Yeah. I, I might, can I make, because on that point, I think it's super important for the audience to understand that it's not just the money as incentive. It's that municipalities, even if they have the most progressive people in charge, don't have the money to do those mm-hmm. things without the help of the federal government. And so that's, I just wanted to make that point because as important as it is that we get local people elected who are, are leftists, uh, we also need them to work in tandem with leftists like yourself in DC, right? Yep, absolutely. Because a lot of the problems, and I'll get into this a little bit too when I talk about the environment, a lot of the problems, you know, municipal tax money is not enough to take care of it. Even if you combine municipal and state money, it's not enough to take care of it. You need right. those federal dollars working all together to fix these problems. Um, so absolutely. Um, and, you know, similarly with the environment, uh, we have some of the worst air quality in the country. We consistently receive D's and S on rankings with our air quality. We have some of the highest rates of childhood asthma in the country, which of course are mostly affecting uh, black and brown children. Um, and we also have a severe problem with lead, not only in the water, but also um, in the paint of old homes and apartment buildings, as well as in the soil, actually, which is something that really doesn't get talked about. Um, we are an old industrial area, uh, cities like Jersey City, Bayonne, Newark, all in the district. Um, there are a lot of older factories there. And back then, you know, they didn't have, I mean, even now don't have great practices, but definitely back then when they were using lead, a lot of that would get in the soil. And in order to fix that problem, you actually have to uproot the soil, the lead-filled soil, and put down new, fresh soil. And it's super expensive to do. Um, it looks like you want to say something, Ryan? No, 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 no. I'm oh. just agreeing. It's yeah. That's oh, okay. it's everywhere. Yeah. The, the Your whole, mouth is open. I guess you were just like, wow. <laughs> the whole country, the whole country is poisoned by leaded gasoline. It's, I mean, and lead paint. My house has lead paint. It, the the um, putting some oh. new windows in, and the guy's like, he chipped under the old paint. It. Yep. There's lead under there. It's just yeah. Ooh. Yeah, you gotta get that taken care of. That's yeah, that's really dangerous. Um, Paint over it. I, it tastes so sweet. <laughs> no, no, just, just but kidding, um, just but yeah. So I mean, in order to fix these problems, of course, I am an advocate of the Green New Deal, which I will. I, I'm going on every single interview and explaining what this means because I think that the establishment is too obsessed with playing petty political games that they've made it a a, a kind of a pariah, the name. Um, And really, in reality, this is what the Green New Deal is. In reality, the Green New Deal fixes two problems that we have at once. One, the problem of uh, non-well-paying jobs and unemployment, as well as the different issues that we are facing with regards to the environment and climate change. And so what the Green New Deal does is it gives folks jobs, good paying jobs with good benefits, union jobs, to go and fix our infrastructure in ways that will benefit um, the environment, ultimately help us combat the issue of climate change. Um, and so I am a big advocate of that. I very much so look forward to going to Congress and being a voice on that um, because, you know, people can have jobs from everything to fr- from, you know, retrofitting houses so that they are and also apartment buildings so that they're more green, um, including solar panels and, and other things that will make, for example, uh, putting like 
uh, greenery on the side of large, these large developments that typically, you know, they get built in these cities and they just take up a bunch of energy and there is no other, there's nothing else clean uh, to try and like fix the different energy um, outputs that they're, that they're emitting. Um, and so people can have well-paying jobs fixing that type of stuff. And that's what the Green New Deal is ultimately. And so, you know, that's something that I want to be an advocate for, um, as well as bringing back, um, you know, Green Corps. So similar to the Peace Corps, having people um, from different areas, different districts bring forward these policy ideas that would best affect change in their neighborhoods with regards to uh, fixing green infrastructure. I also want to bring GIAs to the forefront, uh, which is will be similar to SBAs, which are small business associations. This will be green infrastructure associations, which will help small businesses um, basically either one go green. So if it's an old business and they want to, you know, make their facilities more green in different ways, it can give them government grants or um, low interest loans in order to help them do that. It can do job retraining, um, which again, this is something that small businesses associations do. They give job training on how to open small businesses, how to keep them running, etc. GIAs will do a similar thing, but for green jobs um, or also help give grants and loans to businesses that say are like trying to um, invent some product that will make uh, the environment better in some way. Um, they can also people can also apply for grants and loans in that way. So I also want to bring those to make, you know, the Green New Deal have like some sense of um I don't want to say realness because I think that plays into the establishment's kind of talking points about it, but to bring it more into fruition beyond just a resolution. Um, so that's, you know, you know, with, yeah, yeah with green policy. That's awesome. It's concrete. I mean, yeah. and, and to, and to be clear, the jobs come from the job guarantee, which is mm-hmm. if somebody, you know, wants to work, they can get a job and the type of job they would get would help with the cause of fighting climate change and serving the local communities in, in these innovative ways. Exactly. So I, I think people sometimes don't realize that they just think it's an empty promise about jobs. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's literally a guarantee that enshrines in policy that people have a right to a job and the kind of job that they have will contribute to our collective future, right? Yep, yep. And it's it's guaranteed jobs, you know, paid for by government. Um, so, you know, I think that point is also very important too, because a lot of times you'll hear establishment Dems talk about like these, um, private, uh, public partnerships, et cetera. And that just is basically a way of saying like, we are going to pretend we're doing something good. We're actually going to waste a whole lot of taxpayer money. Um, so yeah, exactly. That would be, you know, part of the federal jobs guarantee, um, as well. And then, you know, just to touch on one other, one last topic, which is the issue of ice. New Jersey often gets overlooked because even though we have a lot of what I will call Democrats in name only, people just see, oh, it's a blue state. It's fine. Nothing bad's going on there. Whatever. Like, great place. Um, but actually, we have severe issues in other areas, but also with ICE. The same horrendous acts that – sorry, my cat jumped on the door. It scared me a little bit. <laughs> the same horrendous acts. Uh, that take place in ICE facilities in places like Texas um, and across the country. We've had similar instances here in the ICE facilities here in New Jersey. Um, we have had detainees who have been sexually assaulted. We have had maggots found in people's food here. Um, and actually, the one of the main guys who's over the ICE facilities literally went on Twitter one day. He's also over the prisons, not just ICE, but like other prisons. He went on Twitter one day and actually bragged about how much money comes to the counties because of these facilities. 
Um, and, you know, Donald Payne, my opponent, back when he was a county commissioner, was actually one of the original county commissioners to bring ICE facilities to New Jersey in the first place. And really? yeah, yep. And since becoming a congressman, he actually um, shies away from talking to immigrants' rights groups. And he'll tell them either the ICE facilities aren't in my district, so what do you want me to do about it? Or he'll just blanketly wow. say, what do you want me to do about this? And it's like, bro, you know, they want you to uh, not vote to bring more funding to these ICE facilities. They want you to use your voice to abolish ICE. They want you to legislate. I mean, that's your entire job. Um, is, is, his, is his response usually, but but if I get up, my seat won't be warm anymore. And I'm, I've been doing so good at keeping the seat warm. <laughs> you know what? I would not put that past him, to be honest. Uh, so, you know, so that's also something I'm running on because, again, like it makes no sense that we have these essentially torture facilities simply because people are born on another soil. Um, and the, and the reasons, you know, I, people love to hark on, well, like, what if they're violent? Like, first of all, the majority of folks held in those facilities, facilities are actually nonviolent. They, um, have been picked up for things that we would consider ridiculous. Now, for example, like smoking marijuana or something like that. Like we, we've already arrived to a point where we think that's ridiculous for American citizens. Well, guess what? It doesn't change because somebody was born on different soil. It's ridiculous because it's ridiculous. Um, and that's the majority of people who are in these facilities are not violent uh, offenders. They are people who get picked up on these silly little laws or, you know, whatever, and they then get detained. Yeah. I mean, this is the fundamental, the fundamental difference that see, one of them anyway, one of many fundamental differences with uh, the establishment Dems, the corrupt Dems, the political machine is that they, they support the violence of the police state and the violence of ICE. And they try to make the victims of those systems be portrayed as the violent ones when really they're just human beings who are being, you know, just eaten up and, 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 uh, just eaten alive, uh, so that these people can keep their power, right? And scare people. Yeah. Uh, by, by, by doing it, right? And in fact, it, there have been studies that have shown that immigrants' groups are actually less prone to violence than people who are, right. you know, born in a certain country. Exactly so right. it, it just like it just doesn't make sense all around. It's ju they're just torture chambers. They're like, they, and they have to be done away with. Um, and so that's another thing that I will certainly be adding my voice and my expertise and, and my fight to once I'm elected in June. Yeah. So <clears throat> we got just a, a few minutes left here, and. Um, I wanted you, uh, I wanted to ask you about, uh, the kind of, you know, you, you've, you've lived in the 10th district for, for almost your entire life. Um, and maybe if you could speak a little bit about the character of like the society, um, you know, mm -hmm. you, you talked about how, you know, kind of older black vote, uh, black voters who are kind of like the, you know, the plurality maybe, or especially of democratic, uh, primary electorate there. And how they've sort of been like beaten down by history, you know, and, and, um, I could see that, uh, certainly in the national context where, okay, we got to vote for Joe Biden because Joe Biden can win a national election. But when you're talking about your own representative, where you're, where it's like, this is an incredibly blue district. And like, why don't we have like, you know, a pissed off radical out there to sort of like, you know, see what we can get. 
you know, because like, th- like mm-hmm. OK, we got to swallow Joe Biden for national reasons, but this isn't a national election in our little district. So, you know, mm-hmm. what I feel like it's a question of confidence and just being like mm-hmm. sort of people having the courage of their convictions to not just sort of go. It's like, oh, this guy's the electable one. He's going to beat the Republican, you know, who may yeah. not even run at all in the general election. So, like, can you speak a little bit about that dynamic and you know, if you try to kind of inspire people to, uh, you know, live their truth or, or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I will say when I, before I announced, I assumed that, um, older black voters would be, you know, a very difficult, uh, I, I assumed it would be Donald Payne's base. Um, I assumed that would be, it was good. I assumed I was going to play well with, uh, younger voters. I assumed I was going to play well, um, you know, with, uh, Probably, yeah, really younger voters is really, is really what I thought would be kind of like the, the differences there. Um, but actually what I am finding, and this is, this is very different than what happened on the national level, is that folks are so fed up with the fact that he does so little in his district that they are just like, he doesn't do anything. That's their big sticking point is that like, he doesn't do anything at all. It's, it, has, it really doesn't have anything to do with like, you know, their survival or, or anything that you typically see on the national level. It's literally just like he hadn't had a real challenger before and they just been kind of waiting for it because they know he doesn't do anything and they don't like it. So really, you know, the battle has been easier than I thought it would be because I thought I was going to have to really, you know, sell myself, sell my skill set, um, sell my policies. And, you know, I, I do that. But even before I have to do that, people say, oh, thank God he has a challenger. That's what I'm hearing consistently. They're ready. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, well, well, we're really excited for you because I mean, well, we haven't talked about, I mean, you have an amazing pedigree as well. It's a great combination of being a political activist, but also I, I think it's undersold how much knowing the ins and outs uh, of legislation and, and, and understanding the machine a little bit in order to combat the machine, uh, is important. I mean, we've had, you know, Franklin Bynum as a great socialist judge in, in Texas on, on the podcast a few times and trying to fight from within, knowing the law and knowing the machine is, is really helpful. Uh, but you've been a deputy chief of staff in the state legislature, a legislative director for New Jersey working families. Um, so it's great to, to pair principle and conviction and inspiration with that kind of experience. Uh, so yeah, so we're, we're really excited. And I, I cut Ryan off. Go ahead, Ryan. What were you going to say? <laughs> oh, no, I, th- I mean, that's all the, uh, that's all the questions that I've got written down. Um, I just, uh, if I were to plug one thing before we go, uh, it would be my, um, well, first, correct me if I'm wrong. I would say that at least certain parts of your district have quite high rents. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Well, that and is so- absolutely correct. I wrote a paper. Some might say the rent is too damn high. I would, I would suggest. <laughs> I wrote a paper for the People's Policy Project, the case for social housing. And I think, uh, I actually talked to the mayor or the staff of the mayor of Jersey City about this once. Um, you know, basically saying we should have, you know, public housing, but public housing that isn't just restricted to the poorest people. And so it needs like a big subsidy for, for maintenance and operations and so forth. You could say, you know, We've got uh, some super subsidized units, some moderately subsidized units, and then some just market rate that will just throw off tons of money that we can use to sort of, you know, run the building. Um, I think that places, you know, that'd be tough in maybe Columbus, but uh, 
uh, places like Newark or Jersey City, I think, you know, you could I've seen some uh, some income statistics from uh, buildings in San Francisco. And boy, you can be real rich being a landlord in those places. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, so if anybody in, uh, you know, municipal government is listening and you feel like, uh, you know, uh, building uh, building some some self-financing public housing, that's. It would go well with your other housing uh, policies that, that uh, serve the people so well. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I know we're running out of time here, but one of the things I also find is that a lot of folks, and I mean, when I say folks, I mean like establishment politicians, when they talk about affordable housing, what they'll do is they'll legislate in a way that only reaches uh, like people who are really, really down bad financially. Um, but there's also people who are working class who are making within like the, you know, 50K range, right? Which, you know, yeah. that may seem like a lot of money to those who are really, really, you know, not uh not benefiting financially um or you know not growing financially but um but when you are living in a place as expensive as northeast jersey that that money goes fast that money goes very very fast and so a lot of times affordable housing initiatives don't reach those folks so you have a lot of those folks really struggling to find housing um so yeah it's it's exactly like you said you know the you have to have those tiers because you know establishment democrats just going for those who are the poorest really really doesn't cut it they, it's good for their brand but it doesn't cut it as far as fixing the problem is concerned so uh, when's the tell us when's the primary and uh, where can people go to learn more about your campaign? And what can they, what can they do to help as well? Yes, yes. So the primary is June 2022. I am starting a year out so that I can galvanize voters, galvanize volunteers, and raise the money. Now I will not be taking money from corporate PACs nor lobbyists nor developers. And so I will really need to have as many small dollar donors as possible. If you go to Oakley for that's F O R congress.com. So again, that's Oakley for congress.com. You can find out all about me, my race, my policies, but you can also go there and make a donation. It really, really does help us go a long way. Um, and you can also sign up to volunteer there as well. Uh, so please, we would love to have you volunteer. Uh, if you don't want to, you know, volunteer, you know, please drop a couple of dollars and, uh, we're going to get this win in June. I, I can feel it. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank, thank you, Imani Oakley. You know, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna see this through. You're gonna clean the air and the politics in New Jersey. It's gonna be known nice. for good food, clean air, and clean politics one day. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for coming on the pod. You're always welcome, uh, especially after you conquer the machine. Come back and tell us all about it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. All right, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>